one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Francis Fukuyama is one of the world's leading political scientists. He is most famous for his book, The End of History, published in the early 90s, which has been kind of misunderstood over the years, but essentially set out that whole era and has become the kind of defining text of that part of modernity. You know, this is something I got a lot of pushback from when I published my last book, Identity, because I said that there's actually a connection between the left wing and the right wing forms of identity politics. We recorded this interview with Professor Fukuyama a few weeks back before the presidential election. He joined me from Stanford in California to talk about whether if Donald Trump loses, that will be a good thing or a bad thing, and whether all his writing and thinking over the past three decades had led to this moment. Can you hear me and see me, Professor? Yes, I can, loud and clear. Very good. I have been spending the last few days um, immersing myself in your canon, in the oeuvre, um, and I have uh, so many things that I'd like to discuss, but I thought since we are pretty much exactly one week away from a election, let's just fast forward one week as a point of departure, and, and let's imagine that we wake up on Wednesday morning and find that Donald Trump has lost. I'm not saying that's going to happen. We don't know. But let's just presume, for the sake of argument, the polls are right. What will you be feeling if that is true? Well, um, first of all, I'll be feeling very delighted. Uh, I think it's extremely important that Biden win this election. Uh, I think a really um, resounding um, rejection of Trump and Trumpism uh, is going to be necessary to heal some of the uh, divisions and, and, and real, you know, terrible problems that have emerged in this country uh, as a result of the last four years. Even if Biden wins, however, we're still really not out of the woods for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the underlying polarization will not have gone away. And indeed, uh, the polarization has gotten to the point where, you know, the president has been 
contesting the legitimacy of any election that he loses. He has a lot of supporters, some of them are armed, that he's advised to go to the polling places and there may be violence or you know, incidents that will mar uh, the election itself. It's gonna take a long time to count uh, all of the mail-in ballots uh, whose volume this year has been really extraordinary because of the COVID uh, epidemic. And we actually could be in a prolonged crisis over who actually won the election that will persist for some uh, days and weeks after uh, November 3rd. So that's one hurdle that we have to get over. Uh, even if the election is decided fairly uh, peacefully and there is a transition of power, uh, you know, Biden is going to face a lot of challenges because, you know, one one issue we'll have to see on November 3rd is whether the Democrats take control of the Senate. If they don't, uh, he's going to face the same problem Obama faced uh, in the last few years of his presidency, where he really can't get anything done because the Republicans will you know, resist anything that he tries to do legislatively. Even if he wins, uh, it's, you know, he still is not going to have the kind of majority that would be needed to pass really difficult le legislation. Uh, and there's also going to be a big gap uh, that will open up between the left wing, uh, left wing of the Democratic Party and centrists like Biden. Uh, and that's a fight that has been kept under wraps up until this point because everybody's so interested in getting Trump out of power. But once Biden wins, that uh, fissure will open up and that's something that Biden will have to deal with. Will you feel in any way sad that this four years has come to an end or that this kind of, <laughs> this, this breach has ended in this way, if indeed it does? Uh, no, not at all. I think, you know, most of us uh, that follow politics closely are totally exhausted uh, by the last few uh, four years because, you know, every single day has brought some new controversy that really shouldn't be happening. And I think that the feeling on the part of me and a lot of other people is that it would be nice if politics could return to being just kind of routine and boring, and then we could actually pay attention to other issues um, uh, other than the you know, the coming election and the latest thing that the president tweeted. So I'm, I'm not going to regret the passing of this era uh, at all. Mm. I'd like to kind of see if I can challenge that a little bit um, with reference to your, your work. Let's zoom out the full kind of 30-year spectrum and return, um, first of all, to the book that made you a kind of world-famous name, The End of History. That is a much misunderstood book. And we recently published an essay on Unheard that said why Francis Fukuyama was right all along. So fear not, I'm not going to uh, attack you on that those grounds exactly. Um, in fact, as a child of the 90s and 2000s, I feel like the end of history did happen in a way, and, and the atmosphere growing up during that period was very much like you described it, um, with the kind of liberal democracy being the pretty much uncontested model and there being a kind of um, a, a lack of drama. And yet, as well as it being a, a diagnosis of a, of, of, a, of a particular ideology, you also kind of investigated and pointed out the weaknesses in it. Uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the last section of that book. Tell us a little bit about that, the, the fears that you had uh, about the weaknesses of the system. Well, the uh, full title of the book was The End of History and the Last Man, 
The last map is a phrase that comes from Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, who basically posited that at the end of history, meaning with the realization of a modern liberal state, uh, you would have a lot of dissatisfaction because um, there was a part of the human personality that demanded you know, recognition and dignity. And if everybody was just into you know, stable consumerism, uh, the latest iPhone, that that would not satisfy the highest aspirations of people, that people really wanted to struggle. Uh, and if history was over in the sense of all the big questions being answered, um, they, they wouldn't like that. Uh, and that's really, I think, the basis for, you know, my speculation way back in 1992 that eventually we'd get to the point where uh, people would rebel against the, 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 the stability and consensus that existed in a modern society and demand something more. And I think, you know, we've, in a way, seen that evolve, that people do want recognition, not just of themselves as citizens, equal citizens in a peaceful liberal state, they want other things. They want recognition of their membership in particular groups, particularly if they are mistreated or marginalized in some sense. They want to be members of nations um, and not just some bland, universal you know, citizen of the world. Um, they want to have their religion recognized. You know, so there are many things that will drive people to rebel against the, the you know, the prosperity and peace of a, of a modern liberal state. Uh, and I think that's really what we've seen arise with, especially with the emergence of populism uh, in many countries, including Britain and the United States. Just to be a bit even more technical, um, you actually see this as a question of the soul. Ultimately, there's a particular um, part of the soul as described by uh, Socrates called thumos, which is a a kind of desire for recognition and a des the spiritedness. Um, tell, yes. us, tell us about that. Well, in The Republic, Socrates has this conversation where he asks his followers, you know, are there really not three parts of the soul? So everybody recognizes we have desires. So that's eros, that's the desiring part of the soul. Uh, there's reason uh, that calculates. Um, and actually, those two together constitute the, 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 the human nature that economists understand, because they say human beings are rational utility maximizers. You know, they, uh, they just have all these preferences and they use their brains to try to maximize those. But Socrates, you know, uh, 2,500 years before the rise of modern economics said, isn't there this third part called thumos? And that's the part that desires recognition of one's inner dignity. And I think that what's happened in the centuries, you know, up to the present is that in Western thought, particularly this idea that we all have these hidden inner beings that have worth and that demand recognition is an idea that has become almost universal. And that becomes the, uh, you know, that becomes the the motor for a lot of politics. So you think about Catalonia right now, or Scotland, right, that these are territories that are parts of uh, stable, you know, pretty effective democracies, but that's not enough because both Catalans and many Scots feel that we actually have a deeper identity that is more narrowly, 
you know, circumscribed by our language and our particular historical traditions. That is not being recognized. We don't have a seat at the UN or we don't have an independent voice as an uh, international player. Uh, and so you get this demand for the recognition of, you know, these, these uh, hidden identities or previously hidden identities. And I think that's really at the basis of a lot of nationalism, but also, you know, of the what we call identity politics that exists in, you know, modern democracies where, uh, you know, women, gays and lesbians, um, uh, racial minorities all, you know, have this similar feeling of their group being undervalued. Which I which strikes me as deeply true um, and actually is a better explanation for the kind of populist revolts of 2016 and more recent than many of the economic explanations, I would say. I mean, do you see it that way, that somehow this kind of globalized, technocratic, central capitalist kind of world order that had developed during that end of history period in some way was inadequate to part of our souls and that that is in part what led to the populist uprisings? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was disconnected from the economic uh, explanation because, you know, as globalization progressed, many people did not see their situations improve. They lost jobs, you know, especially um, men uh, in traditional manufacturing and relatively low-skill parts of the economy saw their jobs fleeing to China and you know, other parts of the developing world. And when you lose a job, it's also a loss of status. You know, that the, a job means that society values you uh, enough to pay you a certain salary. And then if you're unemployed for an extended period, you know, you feel worthless. And it, I think, provokes an intense uh, feeling of anger that uh, some somebody is doing this to you. And I think this is really one of the triggers for populism uh, that, uh, it's very easy to blame this on foreigners, on immigrants, on on various people that are taking something from you. And the most important thing they're taking, you know, it is resources, but it's also dignity because you know you're now you're finding yourself being sucked down into a you know underclass. Uh, and I think that's really you know at the core of a lot of the um, you know the people that have voted for populist politicians. I mean, of course, before the election of Trump, we had Brexit here in the UK earlier that year. Um, and a, a famous quote of yours from that uh, first book, um, I'm just going to read it out. It says, the end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. It does sound a little bit like a kind of European Union summit <laughs> circa yeah. 2014. Um, you know, so, so we then had this Brexit revolt against that sad world that you described so poetically. Why was that a bad thing? Uh, well, you know, in a sense, the European Union succeeded a little bit too well. Uh, it was really created because of all of the bloody nationalism that consumed Europe for the first half of the 20th century. 
uh, and it was deliberately designed to actually replace nationalist aspiration with economic well-being. And, you know, it succeeded in large measure uh, in doing that. But again, you know, that uh, wasn't really sufficient, I think, to satisfy uh, people's uh, aspirations because they really do uh, want to be recognized as people who struggle for higher causes or have, you know, other things other than, than job security in mind. Um, and so I think, and, and it's particularly interesting in Eastern Europe, because this was a part of the world that had lived under authoritarian or totalitarian dictatorship for a generation. Uh, and I think the generation that came out of that struggle against dictatorship uh, was very happy to join the European Union because that meant modernity, that meant freedom. They could say what they wanted. They could come and go uh, in ways they couldn't under communism. But their children that grew up after 1989 or 1991, you know, sort of took that world for granted. So, of course, you know, we can travel anywhere we want in Europe. And actually, we want to move to Germany or to Britain because, you know, we don't like our job situation in Bulgaria or Serbia or wherever, you know, wherever they were. Uh, and I think that that um, uh, taking for granted of that liberal modernity was then what paves the way for other aspirations to, you know, to be recognized for other, other sorts of things. What I'm kind of getting at is what seems to me a kind of central tension or even contradiction, because you more than almost any other writer really seems to kind of appreciate the populist urge or appreciate those urges in the soul that lead to populist governments. Uh, and yet you're so censorious of them. Uh, you know, you single out <laughs> yeah. Poland and Hungary all the time as these threats to liberal democracy. Um, and of course, Trump, you don't have a single nice word to say about. So how can you explain that contradiction? I don't think it's a contradiction because uh, when you, you know, I, I think, for example, um, just to take the uh, kind of white working class voters that voted for Trump, uh, you have to disaggregate that group because they're operating out of a number of different motives. And so I think that there is a really legitimate core to the unhappiness they have with the elites because the elites in the United States, along with those in the European Union, did support this liberal international order that got them out of a job. You know, this was the order that led all these jobs to flee to Asia and, and other parts of the developing world. Uh, and so that aspect where, you know, those same elites said, this is good for everybody and it'll be good for you too, simply failed. They didn't compensate those people that had lost out on, on globalization. And so they have a right to be angry. And then there's a, you know, there's a cultural element to that where there is a kind of, you know, snobbery or disdain that people who are well-educated and live in big urban agglomerations like London or New York or San Francisco have for people that aren't like them. Uh, and so that part of it, I think, is is perfectly right. You know, and, and there are things like the opioid epidemic that had been raging for, you know, a number of years that really hadn't been covered in the mainstream media because it wasn't happening to, you know, the kind of college-educated people that, you know, that a lot of the media barons were, were familiar with. So that part of it, I think, is legitimate. But 
you know, the trouble is that that demand for recognition, you know, then veers off into kind of old fashioned prejudice. Um, and in the United States in particular, because of our racial history, uh, it's taken on, you know, a real uh, racial dimension uh, where, uh, you know, I think some of the resentment against elites is really kind of racially based, that people are kind of nostalgic for, you know, a period where white people were basically, you know, if you thought of an American, it was a white person. And now, uh, you know, that's been changing very rapidly. Something very similar is going on in Britain. And I think that that's less legitimate because I think identity has really shifted, you know, away from that kind of racial definition. Do you not think you're being guilty in it slightly of that same snobbery that you talked about, um, where because there's a kind of distaste uh, around these kind of majoritarian movements, that it's sort of tinged with danger. But, it, you know, if your original thesis is right, and I think it is, that the, the world we were offering these people was, was fundamentally inadequate, and they felt, you know, literally part of their souls was, was being denied, that is an emergency that needed to be fixed. And it was an intolerable situation. Well, uh, yeah, but it depends on the way that you categorize that in, in the, the intolerableness. Uh, and I think that if you substituted class for race, uh, then that would be fine. You know, if you said we have a real class problem uh, in the United States or in Britain, where people with you know, only a high school education really have gotten the short end of the deal and we need to take care of them and make sure they're included in the community. I think that is perfectly fine. And, um, but that's, you know, that's not what's actually happening in, in a couple of respects. So you do really now have, I think, an increasingly overt rise of white nationalism in the United States. I really didn't think this was possible after the civil rights era, but uh, it's been coming back. Uh, but also, you know, it, it feeds off of the left-wing identity politics in which the left has also lost its connection to class, right? In the 20th century, the left-wing agenda was all about the proletariat, and the proletariat in virtually every European country was majority white. You know, um, it was the dominant... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Ethnicity in that uh, country. But that agenda has shifted over the last couple of generations, beginning in the 1960s, so that inequality is not understood as a general class phenomenon, but it's understood as the injustices that are done to very specific and much narrower groups, you know, women, uh, racial minorities, immigrants, um, gays and lesbians, you know, disabled, uh, and so forth. And I think that there, you know, this is something I got a lot of pushback from when I published my last book, Identity, because I said that there's actually a connection between the left wing and the right wing forms of identity politics. Uh, most of the pushback coming from people on the left that said, well, what are you talking about? You know, these people simply want uh, equality. But I do think that, you know, this definition of injustice uh, as predominantly being done to these very specific groups that didn't seem to include, you know, white people, for example, I think was the cause of a lot of resentment. And even today, you can hear that in a lot of the rhetoric on the left, where you talk about structural racism or the kind of intrinsic racism of whiteness or whiteness as a inevitable accompaniment to simply the skin color that you're born with. And I think, you know, that uh, is quite deeply offensive to a lot of white people that are really not fundamentally racist. And so you have this interplay between the left and right wing versions of, you know, identity that uh, I think is very unhealthy for democracy. So that's why I'm all in favor of, you know, getting back to a class based rather than a kind of gender race identity based politics. We have then a, a world that pre, let's say, five years ago, looked much more settled still in the kind of d dying years of that end of history period. Um, but there were aspects of it that people found fundamentally unsatisfactory. Um, and we've had these series of rebellions. Isn't that quite a beautiful thing in a way? I mean, should, should we not, you know, whilst being kind of careful about the ability of these passions to, uh, to turn in a dangerous direction, also be very careful not to try and put them back in their box uh, and not oh, to yeah, try and no, go I, back I, to that well. No, I, I definitely think that's true. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is really um, driven by um, legitimate resentments that people have about the way that the old liberal both national and international order were structured. And I think that we're not never, you know, for example, I don't think that anyone wants to go back to the kind of heyday of globalization where, you know, a company would outsource jobs seeking, you know, the tiniest little efficiency advantage if they 
that ended up screwing a lot of their workers and that was fine, you know, they just do that. I mean, I think that that's something that really needs to be uh, rethought. Uh, and similarly, I think the cultural, uh, you would even say cultural imperialism of a lot of the elites is something that, you know, really, I think needs to be um, uh, investigated. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I think people are probably more aware of um, that gap you know, between elites and ordinary people than they were before the rise of Donald Trump. And so that's all to the good. But I do think that it's important that, uh, you know, we've got a big reform agenda that needs to be put in place. And I do think that it's really important that whatever we do going forward is one that, you know, is conscious of these um, both resentments and, and kind of legitimate claims. Uh, you know, so for example, this is all very abstract, but let me give you a concrete example having to do with immigration. If you look at poll data in the United States, uh, it's actually not that different from Canada, uh, where about 70% of Americans think that immigration has been a good thing. But uh, there is a lot of unhappiness about the fact that we don't control immigration, you know, that so much immigration is illegal, and we don't seem to have a way of uh, stopping that. Uh, and so I think that a policy that would take account of the resentments that, you know, a lot of Americans have is one that would say, yes, we like immigrants, we profit from them, we don't mind diversity uh, in, in itself, but the government ought to be, you know, able to make a decision on who gets to enter the country, uh, and that should be done legally. Uh, and that would satisfy, I think, the legitimate uh, unhappiness with the current system, which is the fact that we're not in control, but it would not cater to a kind of xenophobic prejudice that, you know, drives a certain part of the population. You know, so that's an example of uh, a kind of policy that I think would be responsive the Democrats don't seem to be going in that direction, though. This is the mystery because, you know, yeah. we had 2016 and instead of saying, OK, these are legitimate things that need to be addressed, they've gone the other way. I mean, do you have any confidence that a Biden government that you're keen to see is going to move in that direction, for example, on immigration? Unfortunately, it probably won't be the first item on the agenda. I mean, that I can only explain as a result of kind of the interest group politics within the Democratic Party, because you do have these very well-organized uh, lobbies, you know, uh, pro-immigrant lobbies that are really opposed to, you know, stronger enforcement of immigration laws. Uh, I don't exclude making one more go at, you know, something like a comprehensive reform uh, that might fix this problem. But, you know, like a lot of things that need to be done, it's going to be costly uh, in terms of political capital. And Biden's got so many items on the table that uh, he probably is going to need to get to before he gets to this one. So uh, I'm not sure that this is something he can pull off. My worry is that if uh, President Trump does lose, um, you're going to get a lot of people saying this was an aberration. Donald Trump was a bad egg. And uh, we now need to return to where we were and continue on the arc of progress as we had previously understood it. Um, and, you know, that I think would be damaging. And in, in your recent piece where you talked about the importance of, of, a, of this election and how you were so keen for Donald Trump to lose, there was no mention of that. There was no, no caution uh, about triumphalism or yeah. uh, 
Well, I missed that. Yeah, well, uh, don't worry, you know, if Biden actually wins, I think the conversation will shift to that very, uh, very quickly. And he's got a lot of big strategic decisions to make because, uh, particularly if the Democrats carry the Senate uh, as well, uh, there are going to be a lot of demands from the left wing of the party to move very quickly on a, an agenda that basically will lock in their advantage. And a lot of that, quite frankly, is stuff that probably should be done. I mean, the current American system really privileges Republicans, both in the Electoral College and in the Senate. Uh, and there are different ways of, you know, fixing that. Uh, uh, and, you know, plus which Republicans really shouldn't be allowed to get away with the kind of voter suppression that they've been, you know, they've been attempting. But if that is the first item on the Democrats' agenda, it's going to be very polarizing. And I think what it'll do is kind of deepen, uh, you know, the existing uh, resentments, whereas there are other things that could be done, like a stimulus package that would, you know, uh, actually try to implement the kind of major infrastructure investments that Trump has been threatening for four years, but just never managed to get around to, uh, where I think you'd actually get much broader uh, support uh, from parts of the right. Uh, and, you know, that's a choice that Biden will have to make. I, If I were him, I would go for the latter rather than, you know, pushing for that kind of immediate um, political advantage. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to see what happens. Your position is, is quite a delicate one. And so you're, you're, you're for Biden um, until the day he's elected and your priority then becomes yes. de defending sort of center-left Biden against the more kind of uh, woke fundamentalists in the party. Is that, is yeah. that a fair summary? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that um, my current position, uh, I've moved, uh, you know, reasonably far left on economic policy issues. So I, you know, I think that in order to deal with the kind of rise in inequality that you do need higher taxation on rich people, you need strengthening of social protections, especially the healthcare system. So I think they really do need to fix Obamacare and make sure that that, you know, is actually something that works. Uh, but uh, on the cultural issues, uh, I think, you know, I'm probably going to be spending the next few years of a Democratic uh, uh, dominance, uh, you know, fighting, um, yeah, fighting woke progressivism, because I think that's an area where things can easily get carried too far in terms of you know, the kind of restrictions on free speech and the sort of anti-liberal uh, uh, tendencies of many people that, that believe that stuff. It's quite a, it's quite a sort of narrow, um, vulnerable ground you're on then. You've, you're, 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 you're defending against a kind of identitarian right, and then as soon as you get them out, you're going to be defending against the identitarian left. That's right. That's right. But, you know, I think that that's the way, uh, especially these kind of winner-take-all uh, elections that we have in the U.S. and Britain, uh, unfortunately, that's the way the politics works. If we had, you know, proportional representation or an Australian-type uh, uh, alternative vote system, both parties could actually split into two. Uh, you could get a center-right and then a kind of Tea Party, you know, extremist right on the Republican side. And you could get a woke progressive and a centrist, you know, democratic party, uh, and the two centrist parts of those, you know, of that new um, uh, 
uh, landscape could, you know, ally. And that's where I would find my political home. But unfortunately, we've got a first-past-the-post, uh, you know, voting system where it's either you know, A or B. And once you move from B to A, you know, the thing swings very dramatically. What worries me is that what you're describing there sounds a lot like life before 2015. We had this with Tories and Labour, new Labour and a kind of liberal Tories very close to each other and pretty much dominating for uh, many years. And we had a kind of similar thing uh, in the US, uh, you know, and that's what people rejected. So I'm just sort of coming back to this idea. Is there not an alternative lesson here, which is that um, the true kind of Fukuyama uh, philosophy, which is that actually those impulses are good and necessary, and that the kind of high technocratic liberalism uh, doesn't really deal with them properly. So we need to rethink it. No, no, but you're missing part of what I want to see done. I think that the part that really needs to be different really has to do with the economic uh, uh, policy part. Uh, you know, one of the big problems with the old technocratic liberalism, as you describe it, was that it was very heavily into what's now called neoliberalism. That is to say, this very pro-market, anti-state, you know, I would say ideology that grew up under Reagan and Thatcher that uh, pushed both of the parties in the United States, and I would say, you know, in, in Britain as well, uh, towards a kind of consensus on um, this very, you know, free market version of capitalism. And I think that had a lot of uh, destructive effects. And so I think that we need to uh, rethink that in a really serious way. Uh, I think that, I mean, in fact, this is something I've been trying to wrestle with, uh, whether you can dethrone some of the ideas uh, that have become so dominant, like the, you know, the best outcome for everybody is just aggregate growth, no matter how that happens, uh, that privileges consumers over producers. You know, there's, there's many things that I think need to be fundamentally uh, rethought. And so I think that if you reconstruct a centrist uh, liberal politics, it wouldn't be a return to the technocratic elites that brought you, you know, China going into the WTO and this massive <clears throat> outflux of jobs and so forth. It would really be a, a you know, a, a really different set of economic policies. Uh, and then I think on the cultural front, uh, it would involve a kind of renewed defense of, you know, classical liberalism, where we really do want to protect diversity, but we don't want to, in, in, a, in a way, um, uh, use that protection to, you know, reduce the rights of, of people that don't agree with a, you know, a certain uh, identitarian consensus. Uh, so I don't think it's just a return to the old uh, ideas that, you know, people had rejected. At the very least, though, on the cultural front, um, if you if the lesson of the past 30 years is that these these kind of um, impulses are there um, and that if you if you try to suppress them or ignore them, they will come out in a dangerous way. Isn't there a kind of argument to accommodate them better within the liberal politics? And perhaps the safest way to do that is a kind of benign nationalism. You know, so maybe the, the, the nationalism of Brexit or Poland or or Trump um, you know, in, in a, can be part of the answer for kind of 
directing these energies. I mean, that was one of the main points I tried to make in my identity book, that uh, nationalism may be the wrong term. I mean, what I said is that every modern democracy needs a national identity, uh, that you have to be committed to membership in a national community, that the nation still remains the basic building block of politics, because that's where power is located. So, you know, the European Union doesn't have an army, it doesn't have police, you know, power is really still held at the uh, nation state level. So that's a good thing. Can I just to say? That's it, good. Well, yes, uh, I think. Sounds like a Brexit. Can, sounds like a Brexit argument. <laughs> no, uh, nations can cooperate and they can delegate certain powers to transnational bodies. But ultimately, yes, they are the basic democratic building blocks of modern politics. And as long as that's true, uh, you need to have a national identity. But that identity cannot be based on a kind of partial identity based on race or ethnicity or religion, because our modern societies are too de facto diverse uh, for that. So they have to be built around uh, ideas. And I thought that that was the America that I had seen emerge after the civil rights era in the United States, where, you know, when I was growing up, I remember my father always telling me, uh, you know, when, when somebody would say, well, where are you from? Uh, uh, you know, he said, well, you should say I'm an American because being an American doesn't have a racial connotation. If your ancestors came from Japan, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, and, you know, that's the kind of America that I grew up admiring. And I thought, you know, we had really uh, managed to achieve. And I think that, you know, in the end, I just don't see an alternative for a modern democracy that is actually fairly diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, religion, you know, all these other characteristics. But I do think that nation is important and you need to have loyalty that is to some extent irrational. You know, you... you uh, uh, have to love, you know, the basic founding ideas of your political system uh, um, for that system to really work. And so that's what I think uh, has been really missing on the left. You know, a lot of people uh, on the left interpret a kind of, you know, they, they have a universalist belief in equality. And so it doesn't stop at national borders. Now, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that power really stops at national borders. And therefore, uh, it's important to think about, um, you know, continue to <clears throat> think about power in those, uh, uh, in those national terms. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to take care of citizens of your community before you, you know, you worry about people in Bangladesh or, you know, Uganda or other, uh, or other places. America first. Uh, well, the right kind of America first. I mean, quite honestly, the people that have pushed that going all the way back to Charles Lindbergh in the 1930s you know, had a very specific version of America that they were defending. Uh, but, you know, just like in your family, if you don't take care of your children and your parents before, you know, other people's children and other people's parents, you know, there's going to be something missing in your, I think, in your moral makeup. So actually, then, if each of these three or four examples we've talked about had been slightly different, 
you would be much more in favor of those populist movements. <laughs> you know, um, there's all sorts of things that I feel very badly that because Donald Trump has articulated something that I think is basically true, uh, it discredits that position and it becomes much harder to, you know, to say it. Uh, so, for example, you know, he talks about the importance of borders, and I actually do think borders are important. Uh, uh, I think that critical race theory is very, very deeply flawed, uh, and I'm really sorry that he launched this official attack on the teaching of critical race theory, because now, you know, everybody on the left side feels that they have to defend it because Trump has attacked it. You know, so one out of every hundred things or so that come out of his mouth is actually something that is true that I agree with. Uh, <laughs> so yes, that's right. It, was it, do you think, a missed opportunity then? W was there a kind of a better version of Trump that could actually have dealt with a lot of these things that you have been writing about for decades um, without us now facing the danger of a kind of backlash or sort of reversion in too far the other direction? It wasn't a missed opportunity. It actually was a big setback because, as I said, the fact that he has articulated certain positions that are actually correct ones, uh, but him saying it has really deeply discredited them. And that's unfortunately not a good thing. I think if that same position had been taken by somebody that had much better credibility, that wasn't associated with all of these extremist positions, then you might have had a, you know, a shift in, in, in the right direction. And so I think it's just going to take a long time to undo that damage. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for your time. And um, well, we'll see what happens in a week's time. Okay, very good. Thanks for the talk. Well, thanks again to Francis Fukuyama. Fascinating to hear someone who has so beautifully rationalized a load of reasons for populist governments. Um, but who clearly doesn't like this one. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.